Welcome to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. And that was another version of You'll Never Walk Alone, a slightly better quality version than the previous ones we've been listening to, which have been football crowds. That was actually the Jerry and the Pacemakers number one hit from 1963 that uh, really led to Liverpool using You'll Never Walk Alone as their as their anthem. As we've said previously, it's an older song. It was started in 19, well, first recorded in 1945 in the uh, musical Carousel. But Back in the 1960s and even in the 70s when I first went to, uh, to Premier League uh, games, the uh, home team would have a DJ who'd play songs before the start of the game and they would play the top 10 hits of that week on their BBC hit parade or whatever it was from 10 to 1 and then 1 would be just before the start of the game. And it was always a bit of you know, an entertainment. You knew that was going to happen. And uh, you'll never walk alone was number one for four weeks, I think, in 1963. And so the Liverpool DJ played that for four weeks in a row. And the crowd really got into it and <laughs> started uh, singing it. And they demanded that even when it was no longer on the top 10, uh, that they wanted to keep playing it. And so that's how the whole thing happened at, uh, at Liverpool. And obviously Jerry and Jerry Marsden's a Liverpool uh, boy. The band was a Liverpool band. Um, they're actually... As big as the Beatles back in those days, for they had I think their first three songs were number one hits, which were, they were the first ones ever to do that. And Jerry Marsden's still around. And uh, when we were at Liverpool, I don't know if you remember, Berger, but in, in the first year we were at Liverpool, he actually came and sang uh, yeah. "You'll Never Walk Alone." We were playing well. Blackburn at uh, at home. Mm. Uh, I think it, was, it wasn't one of our better performances, as I remember. But, wasn't um, many in that first year. <laughs> no, the highlight of the day was Jerry Marsden, mm. uh, rather than, than Liverpool. And um, we actually, I'd actually organised a, a staff function that week um, because the staff were all pretty new. We thought, oh, we'd get everyone together. And we went to a 60s uh, concert that Jerry Marsden and the Pacemakers were, uh, were singing at. And uh, we were having drinks at a, uh, at a hotel across the road and we invited Jerry Marsden to join us. And he came over and mm. uh, chatted to all the, the staff and uh, Roy Hodgson, who was the manager then, and we presented him with a, a Liverpool shirt with 63 on the back for 1963. And... Uh, then we went to the to the concert, and uh, as I remember, you left it uh, at interval. Berger, well, sixty-three being a, was the average age of the uh, <laughs> attendees at the concert, so yeah. Being a musical snob, but uh, some of us stayed for the rest of the the <laughs> concert, and uh, it was great. So it was a real privilege to to hear Jerry Marsden, uh, and who only stopped uh, touring a couple of years ago. You know, he's okay. seventy-seven or something like that, and uh, he actually, when Liverpool won the uh, the Champions League last year. There was a big take that concert at Anfield, and he ca- he actually came out and sang "You yeah, Never okay. Walk Alone" at that concert. So, I've got a suspicion if they win the uh, the title, they'll bring uh, him back out again. Yeah, they might bring him back mm. out again. So, uh, anyway, we'll uh, we'll see. So that's the story of of uh, of that version. But uh, enough of that. We actually uh, have our first guest. Yeah, this week. first guest this week, and um, very very privileged and honoured to have uh, the host of, of probably one of the leading sort of leadership and performance podcasts around and it's uh, it's going to be nice to have him on the other side of the mic. Uh, but we want to introduce Cody Royal. Cody, welcome uh, to the Brookie and Burjo podcast. Thanks, Burjo. Thanks, Brookie. It's an absolute honour to be here, especially early days for you guys. And uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to being on the other end of the, the microphone as well. Excellent, mate. Well, uh, look, m- most of our listeners would have probably either downloaded or listened to all of your 
your podcast. Um, but do you want to just give us a quick uh, a quick background of, of your journey from uh, from Melbourne to Toronto? Yeah, well, I've also got well, it's not a Premier League, but an old uh, English football story. So I'm actually related to Ray Bartz, who. Um, Socceroos fan will know pretty well, but yeah, uh, yeah, he's he's my uncle. And uh, so he was the first, I believe the first non-British signing for Manchester United. So um, I'm an Arsenal fan, but uh, yeah, I've got uh, uh, family connections to to Man U. Sorry, lads. Brilliant. No, no, that's just fine. The Liverpool tangent there. Just fine. We did balance for me. Gives us balance. Uh, It's good. but yeah, so you know, my background, I came out of the, the TAC Cup system playing footy. Um, I was a, you know, a, a pretty elite athlete. I, I won a, a state four by 100 championship in you know, uh, under 16s and, and was with the Chargers for three years. And I was really lucky to play with guys like you know, Steve Gillum and Andrew Carazzo and Sam Power, Campbell Brown, um, Ash Hansen, Josh Gibson. So, you know, we had a really good group there and, and um, yeah, it kind of came through that elite pathway. Vic Metro under 15s, under 16s, under 18s and didn't make any of those final squads and then kind of fell out of love with footy uh, after not getting drafted. And this kind of set me on the pathway to where I am now in, in Toronto, you know, halfway across the world. Um, you know, got into the corporate world, obviously, had to go and get a job, played at Port Melbourne, played at Vermont, uh, ended up at Caulfield Grammarians, but nothing really sat too well with me. So picked up two suitcases when I was hmm. 25, moved to the other side of the world. I was really keen to get involved in North American culture and sport. And, uh, and moved over here. So a um, couple of years after that, got involved with the Canadian national team. So I'm still the national team coach there. Uh, so, so we're yeah, talking AFL national team, you're talking about? AFL national team, yeah. So uh, AFL is bigger than you would think in North America. And, and I know people hear about the States, but it's also big up here in Canada. Um, you know, we've got live games on, on television um, you know, we've got 30-something clubs now right across the country and, uh, and I pull the best Canadian-born players from that. So, you know, these are, these are ex-U Sports players. So U Sports is our version of the NCAA. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, guys that really want to be involved in competitive sport but after university it kind of diminishes here. There's no club, there's no, you know, suburban footy, there's no suburban anything really. And so a lot of the time these guys, you know, are walking past the park and see a couple of guys kicking a footy around and then you know, go up to them and say, what's that? And then end up getting involved in, uh, in Aussie rules. Um, and uh, a- another little tidbit for you here as well is we actually have a dedicated f- field here in Toronto. It's out the back of what is the actual police academy. So <laughs> the police academy movies were filmed in Toronto and uh, out the back there's the, there's a cricket field and that cricket field was designated to Aussie Rules football. So probably the only dedicated with posts MCG size footy field in the world outside of Australia 
is in Toronto, Ontario. So. We haven't even got our own uh, one at the Melbourne Demons. We have to share it. So <laughs> it's a great effort. So we're pretty lucky to have that. And sure. uh, yeah, so, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the quick story here though, you know, uh, obviously uh, in the corporate world and, and I'm a writer by trade and those two worlds came together. So, you know, coaching and, you know, looking at how sports teams are put together, how we build high-performance teams, how we recruit, how we lead, how we build culture. Um, you know, I was kind of living that on the weekend and trying to build my own team with the national team and then also watching how the corporate world was doing it at the same time. So I wrote a book called Where Others Won't and uh, that explored, you know, the, the similarities and differences between those two and that, that led to the podcast. Um, who, you know, I've had guests like uh, Darren Burgess, who <laughs> most people will know. We got um, desperate that way. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, had to scrape the bottom of the barrel for <laughs> that one. But uh, no, I've been really lucky. I, I started with uh, Joe Dumas from the Detroit Pistons and Adam Grant uh, on episode one. And then I think episode two was Paul Ruse and James Kerr, who wrote Legacy. So it's kind of been, uh, it was a definitely. Uh, easy to get people on after just seeing those names. So I've been really lucky from there and, and uh, yeah, now ended up, you know, I, I consult a, a whole bunch of coaches across the, the big leagues over here and, and just teams in general around leadership and culture, which for a kid from Melbourne that, you know, bombed out of the AFL and was never drafted and uh, kind of got the shits with footy was, uh, it's been a bit of a dream. It's it certainly is, and we'll we'll get into some of the uh, the lessons, um, you know, from your interviews for the book, and and also your your next book. Um, but one of the things we want to do here in the Brookie and Berger podcast is to sort of talk about some of the more relationship based um, experiences and difficult conversations, um, rather than necessarily the X's and O's of of high performance. Um, one of the things that, uh, and you know, we're going to get right into it here, Cody. I hope you don't mind that you experienced this year was was something that uh, you know, not many people um, will be exposed to uh, in in one of your your players um, and, and how you reacted to one of your players' suicides. Um, if you don't mind having a chat about that, I think that'd be a pretty big lesson to um, to some of our listeners on on how to handle such a an incredibly difficult situation. Yeah, um, it, it certainly was. And, you know, I'm, what have I just turned 36? Um, and I, I've actually got players on my team that are older than me and uh, that's not lost on me. Um, you know, not that that really matters, but it's it just kind of, it, it was really put into uh, the headlights when this happened and you know this is so I was home in January in Melbourne that's when we caught up Burjo and um and thank you for inviting me down to the footy club it was a, it was a great day and and uh you know I was I was absolutely beaming coming back to Toronto I was I got home on a Sunday and then I got a call on that Wednesday that uh one of our well was going to be one of our our starting midfielders uh, had taken his own life um so he had you know, five club teammates that were in our squad. Um, he, you know, one 
Uh, he'd found footy late and, and won the last two best and fairest at his club. Uh, he was starting to become a central social figure within our team. Uh, obviously, you know, much loved within our team, despite the fact that he was actually a rookie. Uh, I had three young girls at home uh, under the age of eight. And so to, to get that call was uh, particularly uh, tough. And then to have to call 40 people individually and deliver that news um, over and over again to a bunch of young men that aren't, you know, again, too dissimilar in age and life experience to myself was uh, particularly tough. Um, and, yeah, it just kind of, you know, from a coaching perspective, you know, I've been around coaching since I was 23. I was lucky Ian Kite and Graham Bergen got me down to Calder when I was young, but nothing like this had really occurred. You know, this is pretty heavy stuff and, and life stuff. And uh, all of a sudden you've got, you know, 40 pairs of eyes staring at you, kind of saying, like, what do we do? How, you know, how do we deal with this? Um, so, yeah, it was, it was certainly tough from a, a coaching perspective, from a leadership perspective. Uh, but I was really lucky. You know, I, I had some amazing people that I was able to call on and I kind of realised after about a day that I needed some help myself to deal with it. Um, so I was able to call, you know, people like Cameron Schwab, uh, who again was just someone that I'd had on the podcast and, and chatted to casually. But, you know, Schwabby knows leadership and he knows hardship. Um, you know, Meg Popovic from the Toronto Maple Leafs, who's just down the road from me, she's the, the sports psychologist um, for the players and just kind of understands that dynamic of, of you know, like a, how a coach deals with young players. Uh, so yeah, I, I was really lucky to be able to put some people around me and make some phone calls for myself, but, uh, yeah, particularly tough time and something that I wouldn't wish on anyone because I can still hear the kind of, uh, I guess you'd call them screeches from, from our other players, um, on the phone. Yeah, I'll bet. Uh, uh, certainly when, um, when I left Liverpool to join Port Adelaide, it was, uh, perhaps a month after Johnny McCarthy's uh, death. So um, that was a really uh, brutal time. I didn't know him and so I, I could offer nothing to the players. But uh, um, seeing them go through that, seeing young men go through the death of a teammate was was pretty traumatic. And the, the new coach um, who jumped in there, um, Ken Hinckley, handled it incredibly well. What, what were some of the strategies that you used and and some of those great people like Meg and and Cameron Schwab sort of uh helped you with if if you can um talk about some of the sort of specific strategies that you used to to help yourself and the players get through that scenario I'll start with the players so probably the proudest thing for me as a coach was how our playing group leaned into the circumstances and um, what I mean by that is that they didn't kind of shy away from the group. They, they, they actually started to share uh, a lot more, you know, how they were feeling and, and you know, it, it was very open and transparent and it was okay, you know, for, for young men to, to be vulnerable with each other and, you know, I've got some amazing 
screenshots from our Facebook group and just our, our chats where, um, you know, you, you've got young men saying that they feel supported and that they, they feel at home and that they can talk to, to this group. And so, um, yeah, you know, that, that's taken a long time for us to get to that point. And from a coaching perspective, I'd say I'm really proud of uh, myself and our coaching group for being able to create that environment for people where I think the natural tendency would be to pull away and yep. and kind of look after yourself like it is in, in any situation where you feel particularly vulnerable. You, you immediately kind of go back inside first, whereas, you know, our guys really reacted by going to each other and supporting each other and becoming closer friends and, and when you consider the size of Canada, we've got guys literally from Vancouver to Halifax. Um, that's, you know, no small feat. Uh, so, yeah, l- l- talking about it and, and just being honest about it was, was um, in terms of, a, you know, strategy, was something that, that we found to be incredible. Um, and, and, again, you know, young men, sports teams, uh, we have to deal with this stuff. We have to talk about this stuff. And this is why I'm happy to talk about it with you guys is because, um, you know, it's our problem to sort out, particularly in Australia, you know, it's obviously getting close to, you know, epidemic proportions in terms of uh, uh, suicide and, and, and mental health issues. So we've just got to talk about this stuff and, and be honest. So yeah, I was really proud of our guys uh, in terms of that. And then, just before you get yeah. get off the players, I mean, did yeah. did the fact that one of their their friends obviously had had mental health issues? I mean, did that bring forward any of the other players? Because presumably among that forty, there are others who have issues. Did did the, were they prompted then to start talking about their own mental health health issues, not just related to to the the friend's suicide, but their own uh, maybe ongoing issues? Yeah, they were Brookie, and and you know again we've we've had a number of events, and um, uh, I've talked pretty openly about you know one lock-in meeting that we had before the twenty seventeen International Cup. Um, you know, I was on Mark McGowan's podcast <clears throat> uh, last year and, and and talked about that, and you know we we basically had a vulnerability session, you know. The, Pretty, pretty stock standard in the AFL these days. But, you know, for young Canadian men, uh, you know, learning the game, it, it wasn't something that was particularly comfortable for them. But we'd had sessions like that in the past where guys had talked about, you know, having anxiety and, and um, you know, their own uh, mental health issues. And I'd shared, you know, my story of, um, you know, why my, uh, why my mum left my dad um, which isn't a particularly nice story. And, and so, you know, we, we'd had some, some occurrences like that in the past. I think there was a kind of an expectation almost for them to react that way and for the senior players to really stand up and, and take that on, and I'm glad they did. And, and, I mean, the reality is we all have this stuff. We, we all deal with all these different challenges and, um, yeah, as, as men where we're not – particularly conditioned to be able to deal with them in a good way. So that's why I'm particularly proud that they were able to overcome that and say, no, no, we're better off together and dealing with this together. 
um, you know, to the point where a couple of uh, or quite a few players actually flew in just for the funeral from all across the country. So, you know, out of pocket travel is not particularly cheap in, in Canada, domestic travel. So, um, you know, guys going out of pocket to just come and see the other boys and be around them and pay their respects was uh, particularly encouraging for a bunch of, you know, amateur athletes. And I guess the, the extension um, from this, Cody, is, is uh, and I'd love to hear your thoughts, is that there's a balance that, uh, you know, those of us dealing with, with men in general, but certainly with athletes, because there is a almost a performance welfare balance. I've, I've got my own views on it, but I'd love to hear yours through talking with some of the amazing people that you have, um, both on and off the record, I guess. Um, because in, in your day, presumably, and in certainly my early sort of fitness coaching career, the coaches were a, a lot more brutal with their players and there was a brutal honesty and that was... Uh, um, done to uh, invoke a response and develop resilience. And um, nowadays, obviously led by Richmond, who've been the most successful AFL club, and, and I'm sure there are examples all around the place, but certainly within the AFL, less so, you know, the Premier League, um, there's there's the empathy, um, vulnerability. Uh, it's almost like a revolution that's going through clubs and every uh, performance staff member that I speak to say that it's happening at the clubs. There, there is an awareness now um, of the um, the dangers of of being too strict with players and too um, uh, firm with them. I guess um, because we're dealing with a slightly different generation. How do you uh, suggest people get that balance? Because you know, players need to perform and there's a reality that if they don't perform, they're off list, they're not getting as much money and they're not in a job and therefore their welfare is compromised. Um, but how do you uh, suggest and how do you go about that with your players and how do you recommend that others do, given that balance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting world, isn't it? And it's been fascinating for me in exploring leadership and culture with the, you know, the vast array of people like you're talking about, Berger, where, you know, uh, some of the people that I've interviewed and become friends with and text with and consult with, you know, it goes from like a Joe Dumas who's been thrust back into the spotlight through the Michael Jordan documentary who's bad boys, right? Like you can imagine the, the kind of stuff that, um, was going on in the late 80s and early sure. 90s in the NBA and, and you know, from a, a leadership perspective and, and culture and you've seen the vision, you know, they, they're literally beating the, the suitcase out of each other um, to, yeah, now this kind of new school methodology of, uh, of connecting and, and, and this is one of the things that, that I really loved talking to, to Goody about was, uh, and the thing that we probably bonded over the most was that that he he gets this kind of new new world of of, of understanding each individual and trying to empower them. So, it, like it's been an interesting transition, but I don't think you can avoid it, Berger. Like that's the answer to the question: is you have to build trust with people, and and it has to be authentic trust. It can't be 
I'm I'm going to give you a little bit of leeway so that you'll do what I say, so that you'll do the 400s when I tell you to do them. It's it's the other way around. It's, it, it's got to be positive intent. You've got to assume positive intent from from the the player has to assume positive intent from the coach, and so it has to get to a point of I'm telling you this because I love you and because this is going to make you better. And so how do you get to that point? I think that's it's it takes a, a lot of conversations. It takes uh, you asking questions that you haven't in the past. It's um, it, the the thing that I think I stumbled on with where others won't as a as an idea, as a concept, as a name, is that it undoes what are the assumptions of leadership and culture in the past. And I think we've got to undo a lot of those assumptions. And, you know, uh, in the workforce, one of the assumptions that doesn't work anymore is that everyone is just motivated by money. So, you know, this is probably the first, well, before, before this at least, this is probably the first generation of abundance where we've actually had too much stuff, too much money. And so the old world methodology of saying, well, if you're a salesperson, you're purely going to be motivated by money, so you're going to make more sales calls. That doesn't work anymore. Um, you know, similarly in sport, the idea of, you know, well, everyone wants to, to win a championship. Well, that's kind of an assumption, you know. Um, a, a lot of players just want to play well and they want to feel needed and, and loved. And so, yeah, I think, I think you have to undo all the assumptions and then just go to the people that you're coaching and leading and saying, what do you think? Like, what are you actually thinking? Uh, one of the things that we ask our guys is, how do you know personally that you've had a good game? And the great thing is, because they haven't been whitewashed by AFL media, yeah. is they have a vast array of different answers to that. A lot of them don't say, have 25 kicks, which is the most beautiful thing to hear. Um, you know, Some of them will say things like that I get the most high fives because if I get a high five, it means I've done something well for the team. And so, you know, there's, yeah, the, the long answer to your question, Bridge, I've, I've, um, I've rambled on here a little bit, but, you know, this idea of one size fits all, we're all going to run the 400s, we're all going to do this, we're all going to do that, uh, has fallen by the wayside. Um, it's seen as like a militaristic way of doing things. And uh, if you've ever spoken to anyone in the military, they'll tell you that they moved away from that about 25, 30, 40 years ago. Um, and so it's time for the rest of us to follow. Yeah. So the individual, go and actually talk to them. And I've got a follow-up, which is, again, going to be a direct one. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Cody. Um, do you need to get along with each other in a team in order to be successful? We know me being involved with Arsenal a little bit and you being an Arsenal fan, the famous Invincible team, famously didn't get along particularly well, yet they're the most successful Premier League team of all time. Uh, do you need to all love each other and get along with each other or is that simply that I trust 
that when we go out onto the field, you'll do the right thing by me and I'll do the right thing by you, even though outside of the field we might not actually like each other. Yeah, I think we went into the idea of everyone having to like each other and it's nonsense. Um, I mean, look at, you know, yeah, there, there's a million examples of that. Again, the, the documentaries recently, uh, was it that uh, 06, 08 Spain team oh, yeah. um, that won Euro and, and the World Cup? You know, that was a bunch of Barcelona and Real Madrid players. Some of them wouldn't eat at the same table. Um, and, and so, yeah, you know, I, I've had conversations with, you know, Ashton Sims here in, in Toronto, um, who, who came and played for the Toronto Wolfpack, who's, you know, obviously played at, uh, at a very high level with the Broncos and Warrington and a whole bunch of clubs. And, and, uh, you know, he said to me, I, I love heavy metal and some of the other guys love hip hop and some of the other guys love island music and, and the idea is that when we all get out there, that we all just uh, know and trust that we're going to do the best thing by the other person. And that's really all that matters. And I, I would concur with that, Bircho. Like, I really don't think everyone needs to get along. In, in fact, I would probably argue that a little bit of friction is useful. Why do and, you reckon that? And the reason I that, say that yeah. is, is it's just observable. Uh, I think... I think the iPhone doesn't get made without friction. <laughs> yeah, you see when they're, you know, there's the odd punch up at training and the, the media love that and the, they show that as evidence that it's a bad culture and that, you know, the, and so on. But you're actually suggesting that that may not be a bad thing. Potentially a healthy culture, to be honest with you, um, in, that, in that they want it. Um, you know, there's, a, there's certainly a drive and you know, if the players can get over it, uh, I, I, I wouldn't bat an eyelid at a, at a training punch-up, honestly. Um, I, I know that might sound a little bit archaic, but uh, I saw one the other day. And, yeah, again, whatever form the friction takes, I think that just that little bit of friction. Again, you saw it in the, in the Bulls documentary. Yes. Anyone that's watched that is there's yes. always this – this point of being driven by the friction and, um, you know, I, I, I know that's what drove the Pistons as well is there's just that little bit of friction and, and I, I've spoken to so many people that have won things and been on teams, you know, like Tony Granado who played on that, uh, on, on the team with uh, Gretzky in Los Angeles. It's like there's just this little bit of niggle and, yeah, I think it's, it's healthy. Obviously, you know, there's, there's a point where you kind of plummet off a cliff and so you, you've got to keep it in check. But I honestly do think it is, uh, it is healthy and I think you'll see it, if you're being honest, you'll see it in most teams that achieve something. Uh, certainly on an individual level, Cody, I, I can honestly say the best players that I've ever been associated with um, have not necessarily not necessarily been the most talented, but have been the most competitive at training um, and have, you know, annoyed their teammates from time to time by being demanding and because you just cannot uh, go into game day without um, practicing that competitive nature. 
um, and that that goes in any sport that I've been associated with. So I agree with you. I guess my question then becomes to you as a coach, can you foster that? Certainly if you talk to Pete Carroll, I've uh, been lucky enough to spend a bit of time at the Seahawks. It's it's compete, compete, compete. Everything they do is a competition, even their team meetings and things like that, as you probably know. Um, but how uh, how can you uh, sort of foster that or, or even garner that if it's not there within a team? Yeah, well, I mean, the Seahawks are a great example in that they've identified it, they've named it, they've built everything around it. I think that's how you create it if you don't have it is is you actually, you know, <laughs> Brene Brown talks about this all the time is like call it out, like give it a name, give it something. We, we need competition. Yep. And, you know, it, it becomes infused in training drills. It becomes infused in, yeah, uh, you know, little, little funny side games that you have just to keep each other entertained in the meantime. But. Yeah, I think um, I think the Seahawks are, are really a, a great example of what you're talking about, Burjo, where they've just it, it's gotten into every nook and cranny within the organization. And that's what culture is. Like that's what an organizational psychology is, is this singular idea of what it takes to win. And I think I think there's actually two elements to it. I think there's a an agreement on the competition level. And then I think there's a, a talent matching that occurs as well where, you know, everyone can kind of look around the huddle and go, well, yeah, we're all pretty good here and I trust that everyone is, is uh, you know, has my best interests at heart. So they're talented and, uh, and we're all going to do good work and we agree on how hard we're going to compete. I think that's a, a magic formula. And how do you stop that getting out of control? I mean, you, you you know, you must have seen instances where it goes too far, this competitiveness. Oh, all the time, yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, that's a tough one. Uh, I mean, geez, there's, you know, there's documentaries on the Australian cricket team now and um, <laughs> that people message me about in North America that have, you know, watched, you know, uh, the test. And there's a perfect example of, to be honest, uh, competitive nature just uh, allowed to, uh, you know, continue on uh, without any ramifications. So it, it certainly has to have a framework around it and I, I don't think that's any different from any other culture is uh, you've, you've got to build, um, you know, you've, you've got to have a fence around the farm and, you, you know, you want the cows to touch the fence at certain points and just get a little shock and then come back into the, the middle of the paddock um, hmm. without kind of busting out of the, the paddock. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. Um, I guess just uh, shifting focus a little bit to, uh, I guess, your podcast and, and some of the people that you've interviewed, I'm going to throw a couple of names um, at you and uh, I'd love to hear the, the biggest lessons that you learned from those guys and, and we'll start because we spoke about the Seahawks we'll start with uh, Michael Gervais uh, obviously he's got a great podcast out himself but w what would be the take-home message from your chat and your learnings on and off 
uh, the record, I guess, on and off the podcast with with Michael. Yeah, the one thing from that is the just the way that they have thought about culture, and, and again, they you know they call it a you know a performance psychology or a collective psychology or an organizational psychology. Um, I think they actually think about that whole concept differently than a lot of organizations. And, you know, the reason I say that is I think there's structural alignment that they have between the owner, the head coach and Michael. And you can kind of hear that in the interview that I do with him where, you know, he's not just some psychologist that's brought in to deal with the players. He is actually probably a string puller uh, to a you know, large degree and yep. helps maintain the organizational psychology of the, the whole organization probably more than most people will give him credit for. And so that's just such a different way of looking at psychology in general and culture in general and bringing you know, a, a psychologist who's, who's been around, you know, Felix Baumgartner, who's, you know, jumped from outer space, um, to, ha- to have him uh, have such a prominent role in dictating a lot of that was really striking. Cody, one of the other um, people that's fascinating in the performance world, which you've interviewed, in my opinion, is, is Rasmus uh, Enkerson from Brentford. And, and when, when we talk about culture, I guess one of the definitions that I live by is this is just what we do. And uh, I reckon Brentford have, and and some of the other teams that Rasmus has worked for, have developed their own sort of unique um, culture. Um, what did you learn from from having a chat to him? Yeah, certainly a different one. So for anyone that doesn't know the um, who Brentford are, you know. Uh, under-resourced team in the championship, so the the second tier of English football, um, but were bought by one of their long-time fans who made his money in uh, in gambling. So, you know, uh, analytics through the roof, um, and, and they've really revolutionised their club by thinking like gamblers and investors. And, yeah, the, the thing that really stood out about Rasmus. So Brentford is, is one and, and Midgieland is the other club that he's involved in in Denmark is that they're actually, they're happy to go against the game. Uh, you know, I, I think one of the thing that, one of the things that cripples a lot of organizations is they don't have the bravery to go against the common consensus. You know, like we, we talk about in the NFL, for instance, as a copycat league in that, what one team is doing, every team is doing. Whereas what I learned from Rasmus is that you can be different and you can look at things differently. You can look at training differently. You can look at your pregame entertainment differently. You can, you know, uh, Midgieland after COVID, you know, they couldn't have uh, obviously um, fans in the stadium. So they had a drive in football experience. So they, you know, set up their big screens outside of the 
the stadium and had fans drive into the car park like an old school <laughs> drive-in. <laughs> and so, so again, it's like go like having the bravery to go against the game can really benefit you. And the reason that resonates with me, obviously, is my my whole brand is is called "Where Others Won't." So when you talk about <laughs> you know uh, organisations that are going where others won't, you you can't really look past what Brentford and Midland do. I guess the other classic example is Moneyball, really, isn't it? Totally. Exactly. And, and uh, I, you know, that's the opening to my book in that Bill James was writing those things for 25 years before anyone really took notice. You know, they, they, it was, I think, 1979 that he started writing his, his weird statistical analysis of baseball. And no one cared for 25 years. And then all of a sudden it became the thing. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's some smart people out there. We've just got to listen to them, as you say. I want to just uh, change tack a little bit. I mean, I, the best coach I ever had uh, in my not very illustrious footy career had a philosophy that uh, you treat others the way you want to be treated yourself. Now, I read something you wrote recently where you suggested maybe that wasn't the ideal scenario. Yeah, I I want to argue about that a little bit. I, I would propose that the best way to treat someone is the way that they want to be treated, not the way that you want to be treated. And the reason I say that, Rookie, is because I think it forces a conversation about how you, how you both want to be treated. Mm. And, and I think those are healthy conversations. And going back to what we were talking about earlier, uh, I think those conversations are really healthy in that we've made a lot of assumptions about people for probably too long and, you know, about what motivates them and, and what they want. And, and yeah, I think, I think the phrase is wrong. I think it's treat people how they want to be treated because then you're obligated to go and say, well, how do you want to be treated? Mm. Yeah, interesting point. Obviously, leadership is one thing that, that we're all fascinated about and we, we talk about for, for ages and so on. I always have one question I always like to ask people is, can you learn leadership? Can you become, if you're not a natural leader, can you become a leader and how? Oh, the eternal question, isn't it? Yep. I think you can become a leader. I think it's a, it can be a learned skill. I think there are certainly people who have a leg up, just like anything else. I think there are uh, people that have a leg up on being able to shoot a three-pointer from you know, further than, uh, you know, or Steph, let's call it Steph Curry, you know, from, from yeah. the, from the logo, you know, I, I think there are talented people, uh, from a skill perspective. I think there are talented people from a leadership perspective, but I think it really can be learned. And the more I interact with people around the world that have come from such different backgrounds and Burjo talks a lot of, you know, in the, in the performance space about, how how much he learnt at Liverpool from, you know, it, it's just different with someone like Luis Suarez from Uruguay. It's just 
different. There are different things that apply to him and his background and conditioning than apply to someone from Atlanta or someone from Melbourne. And and I think that's the same in leadership. And so, yeah, I, I think it can be learned. I think people certainly have a leg up. Uh, I think people are certainly more in tune with uh, what's in vogue in the day. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I haven't really ever subscribed to this a leader is born thing. I think we all have something in us that maybe comes out and, and, and maybe there's this kind of pilot light that's in all of us of leadership and we just need to uh, enhance it a little bit. And finally, look, I would love to talk all day. Uh, it's been fascinating, but... The similar differences and similarities between the sporting culture and the corporate culture. I mean, you know, sport has been talking about leadership and culture for a long time. Corporates maybe maybe for just as long. Or, or uh, but what what is transferable? Do you think from the sporting world into the into the corporate world? I know you straddle both areas. Are they similar? They are similar. They're they're about human beings, and. That's the major similarity, and, and that's sort of written about and studied and, and spoken about for the last five or ten years. And and the, the the difference is that the corporate world doesn't understand that. It's still very outward facing. Uh, you know, you have people who, you know, you kind of have. I talked about the iPhone earlier. You kind of have these people that think that the iPhone just magically appeared. Uh, from somewhere, a bunch of human beings got together, a team of human beings got together and were put into an environment to create that thing. Um, it, what The technology didn't create itself. And so, you know, I, I think uh, where the gap is, and this is the gap that I've been trying to bridge for the last decade, is that the, the, <laughs> the common denominator here is human beings. And in sport, we've been forced to face inward towards our people and say, how do we best cater to you? Um, for you know, 150 years, uh, Melbourne Footy Club, the oldest you know, sporting club in the world, mm. uh, 150 years old. So there's some lessons there about how, how human beings work, whereas business is really only just coming into that, that landscape where they've realised that you can come out with the iPhone and then some kid in Russia has copied it within 24 hours and has just as good a product and, and, it, and cheaper, you know? Um, and so the, the actual X factor is, is human beings. So there's some work to do, but um, there's, there's certainly a, a huge portion of overlap. And the overlap is that it's human beings, Brookie. Yep. Good point. Absolutely. And uh, look, it's been great, Cody. As I said, I loved, we'd love to chat to, uh, for ages, but uh, really appreciate your time. Uh, it's pretty amazing that we can uh, we can chat uh, when you're on the other side of the world, and uh, and and you know everything is so relevant to what uh, what we do here. And uh, uh, it's been fascinating listening to your to your thoughts. Uh, I know we'll never be as big as your podcast, but uh, you know, thanks for being our first guest. Anyway, Cody, cheers, mate. Amazing, mate. Thanks for having me on. I'm honoured. 